0: Taking it to a
1: do it yourself level. Hello, and welcome to another edition of the Beyond Zero show. We're coming to you from the studios of 3CR Melbourne, syndicated around Australia on the Community Radio Network, and podcast on the internet at bz.org.au and 3cr.org.au. You can also follow us on Twitter at Show. My name is Kay Wenigel, and today I'm joined by my co hosts Laura Bucknell and Michael Steindall. <laughs>
2: Nat Bucknell. <laughs> Natalie.
1: <laughs> Sorry, it's Nat.
2: <laughs> g'day, Kay, G'day, Nat.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Laura was going to be Yeah,
2: Laura's <laughs> got the day off and Nat's <laughs> panelling for us. Thank you, Nat.
1: Today we're going to be talking to Professor Will Steffen, who is an expert counsellor at the Independent Climate Council, which was launched after the federal government abolished the Climate Commission and which has just released its second critical decade report. Professor Will Steffen is also a climate change expert and researcher at the Australian National University. He was on the panel of experts supporting the Multi-Party Climate Change Committee, has served as the Science Advisor to the Australian Department of Climate Change and Energy Efficiency, and was Chair of the Antarctic Science Advisory Committee. Welcome, Will, and thanks for joining us today. Hello, Kay. Good to have you on board here.
0: A Pleasure to be here.
1: Now, Will, we know that the Climate Commission was relaunched as the Climate Council... So can you tell us a bit about how the Climate Council works now?
0: Yeah, well, look, we're we're a completely uh, publicly or crowdfunded uh, organisation now, uh, but we have many of the same principles we had as the Commission. That is, we focus on uh, solutions to climate change, we focus on the basic science, and we focus on international action. What what is Australia doing and what are other countries doing? So we're trying to take a a broad perspective. And uh, like the Commission, we base uh, all of our work on um, authoritative information and if at all possible peer reviewed uh, uh, information from the literature so again it's a it's a science uh, uh, based uh, approach to all of this uh, but it's taking a comprehensive view to the climate change challenge
2: Professor Stefan uh, the climate council wrote the first critical decade report in two thousand eleven and now you've just released the second, which is, of course, what we're primarily interested in hearing about today. But just to give us context, can you briefly summarise what your observations were in 2011?
0: You know, first of all, I should say this is the fourth, not the second. Oh, sorry. Um, Thank you. We've done them every two years to track progress. So we've done critical decade reports in 2011, 2013, 2015, and now 2017. Um, But I think going back to your question, uh, what were things like in 2011? Uh, well, the science was still pretty clear that uh emissions of greenhouse gases, mainly from fossil fuel, were warming the climate. Now, we had a suspicion back then that we were starting to see changes in extreme weather events, for example, um, heat waves, uh, bushfire weather, and so on. But the data really weren't there back in 2011. It was more a case of, well, the physics tell us this, what should be happening, we think it's happening. There's been a huge difference between 2011 and 2017. Now we have a massive analysis and data that's showing us very, very clearly uh, that extreme weather events are getting worse uh, because of climate change, because of the extra greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. That's on the science side. I think in terms of the policy and so on, um, we just uh, come through the 2009 uh, Copenhagen uh, Climate conference, cop- conference, and there was a bit of disappointment, as most people remember after that, so it was a... Uh, um, a, a case then of uh, a little bit of pessimism, looking forward, saying, how are we going to pick up the pieces and, and get going on this? Uh, there wasn't a whole lot of action. Um, CO2 concentrations were still going up quite strongly in the atmosphere emissions were still going up. So it was a case of we got a really uh, big job ahead of us uh, during this decade.
2: And in the, this most recent report, you had five key findings uh, which we'd like to go through now. The first of sure. these is... Um, the window for tackling climate change is rapidly closing, uh, which is a frightening concept, um, but a reality. So please explain a bit more about that.
0: Well, look, this, this is based on what's called the carbon budget. Uh, and that's, a, again, a science-based approach to, to really quantify what we need to do to meet that uh, two-degree Paris target. And it's just like a household budget. You have a certain amount of, of, of money you can spend in a certain amount of time, say a month, uh, we've got a certain amount of carbon that can be emitted between now and, and net zero emissions. In other words, we have to get carbon out of the system uh, to meet that two-degree target. When you work back through the numbers, we've been consuming that budget at a, a, very, uh, a very rapid rate over the past couple of decades. And when you look forward, um, if we don't have uh, emissions peaked by 2020 at the latest, um, and emissions going strongly downwards thereafter, there is no way uh, that you can economically and technologically uh, meet the two-degree target. So that means that uh, some countries are well on the way to actually doing that, the Scandinavian countries, for example, and the U.K., but most are not, and certainly not Australia. So that means that we need to have very clear plans, policies, actions in place by the end of this decade at the latest, if we're actually going to, going to uh, have a chance of meeting that two-degree target.
1: So that's by the end of 2020, is that what you're saying?
0: Yeah, so we have to ha- have all the plans in place. Otherwise, when you start looking at the emission reduction curves, let's say that we fiddle around and don't get our act together until 2025, which is – and by the way, Australia's, Australia's emissions are still going up. Uh, if, if we wait that long, then you basically have to decarbonize an economy in one decade. One decade, and that's simply not possible. Mm, and so, expensive. so it's, it's absolutely critical that we get, um, emissions trending downward by 2020, or, or at the very least peaking by 2020. But the really important thing is we have to have agreed as a society, as a country, uh, and other countries do too, that we're going to do our fair share to solve this problem. That means we need plans, policies in place, not just for the next three years, but for the next 20, 25 years, get uh, carbon out of our economy.
2: No, not like the Liberal Party was saying recently, oh, let's wait till 2029 20, and then do it all because it'll be cheaper to do by then.
0: That's completely and utterly <laughs> stupid. I know, that's Absolutely. So, you can quote me on that.
1: <laughs> Secondly, um, is the consequences of climate change that are happening all around us, from the worsening extreme weather to sea level rise and damage to iconic ecosystems... My question really to that point is Are people in Australia really noticing these effects yet?
0: Yeah, I think they are But but sometimes um, we have a short uh, attention span And we get on to something else I mean a good example of that is the Great Barrier Reef uh, Which there was a lot of interest A lot of uh, discussion, a lot of media around that When we had two consecutive mass bleaching events And and led to very high mortality In the most pristine part of the reef Uh, That seems to have died away again um, but there was a lot of interest in that. When you have the extreme weather events, um, five years ago, uh, you couldn't mention climate change or else you were jumped on by the media and a lot of other people um, saying that you can't say that. Well, now there's a lot of discussion uh, around, for example, the storms in South Australia, uh, the massive bushfires we've had. Uh, the last few years, there's been one down in Tasmania, obviously the 2009 fires in, uh, in uh, Victoria and so on. So I think there's a lot more discussion now around uh, climate change as a factor that is uh, making these extreme weather events worse. And I think we now have far more solid um, scientific data, both observations and modelling studies now, that really pin that down. So uh, I think we've uh, turned the corner on that issue. Um, and as they are increasing with mo- uh, with more frequency, um, there's more opportunity to remind people that um, this is where the climate's heading, and it's not a good direction.
1: Well, the the third of those key findings in the report is that solutions to climate change, the climate challenge, are well known and cost effective and available right now. So renewable energy is already replacing aging, polluting fossil fuels as the energy system of the future. With the installation of solar and wind systems globally doubling every five point four years. So this is you know, this has been a positive really positive development since the first report. But how does Australia's change to renewables compare to the rest of the world?
0: Well, I think we, we we have an opportunity to be a leader here, uh, both because of our, our technological development, but also because of our enormous renewable resources, both solar and wind. But yet we've had policies that actually tried to stymie uh, and has stymied to some extent uh, the rollout and development of this industry, which is just just tragic and uh, pathetic in my view. Um, but uh, I think the, the real switch, even in just a few years, is that this um, transition has been dramatically fast. Uh, the cost curves have dropped faster and lower than anyone would have predicted. If you look at the International Energy Agency's projections um, from even five years ago, they were wildly out on how how fast solar and wind can be be taken up. Uh, so this is a case of 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 where there's a remarkable opportunity. Some countries are really taking advantage of this and moving forward, uh, and others, unfortunately, like Australia, are lagging behind. And we emphasize in the report, Kay, that the issue here is not technology, it's not cost, it is ideology, it is poor policy, it's blocking movements by particularly the federal government, in contrast to several states who are really moving forward um, on, on renewable energy.
1: So, well, the fourth key finding is that Australia is failing to tackle climate change with emissions rising, and as you, as you said before, and there is a lack of a coherent and national approach to reducing emissions in the short, or medium, or long term for that matter. We're known as the global climate laggard. Oh, this is awful, isn't it? It just sounds terrible.
0: Well, it's, it's interesting that when you go to the um, conference of the party meetings, the COP meetings, Uh, I think we get more of the fossil of the day awards than any other country does for our our backward approach to climate change. And
1: there's just no Uh, reason for it, is there?
0: No, look, and, and I think when you when you look at the polling the last couple of years that CSIRO and others have done there's no doubt that the majority of Australians want uh, far more vigorous and effective action on climate change that's coming through when you look at what's happening in the states uh, and I've uh, got a lot of uh, knowledge about the ACT because I'm on the ACT climate change council and it's remarkable what's happening here we'll be 100% renewable by 2020 we're now rapidly putting in places uh, in p- putting the pieces in place to decarbonize our transport system uh, by 2040 or 2045, moving rapidly on on light rail, electric buses, electric vehicles,
1: mm-hmm.
0: integrated mm-hmm. system, much more active transport, walking and cycling is going to be promoted in Canberra. But the point is we're putting a plan in place to do this that, that, that's going to be cost effective, it's going to be rolled out uh, in a way that's manageable, and it's going to be within our carbon budget. So the really wonderful thing about about working with our government here is they get all this stuff, And they realize that they've got to deliver this in a way that the community is going to accept. It's going to make a better Canberra as we go forward. And it's not just Canberra. Uh, uh, Victoria's starting to move forward. South Australia's done a lot on on renewable Mm -hmm. energy. So the positive side in Australia is a lot of states are actually doing a lot on climate change and and doing it at the rate that's actually required to meet that two-degree Paris target. So there, there are models out there that show that you can do it, you can do it, um, in an economically viable way, in a technologically viable way, and in a way that delivers other benefits to communities and states. So I just keep emphasising, this is no longer a technological or economic problem. It's a problem of ideologies uh, and politics.
1: That's right. And it's really fantastic that the um, the state governments and also the local councils and community organisations are actually doing all the hard work.
0: And of course... Yeah, that's right. We, we're launching, or we have launched the city's, Power partnership um, with the Climate Council. We're working now with over a hundred um, local uh, government jurisdictions, sharing information and so on to ramp up action at that level on climate change. There's a lot of enthusiasm, a lot of support at that level because at that level, both both the local governments and the citizens can see all the co-benefits uh, that um, joining the renewable uh, energy boom, getting carbon out of their uh, out of their economies, they can see all the benefits of that.
2: So just further on this uh, Australia's laggard status amongst the G20 countries, Australia's emission reduction target, which is 26 to 28 percent on a 2005 baseline, is unusually weak, and it's nowhere near what's required for us to play our fair share for a two-degree Paris target. But given that the climate emergency really is that we should be going to 1.5 degrees as an absolute um, worst case, what should our target be? Well.
0: Yeah, look, if if you look at what the uh, Climate Change Authority recommended in 2015 going into Paris, they recommended if you stick with that 2005 baseline, it should be 45 to 65% reduction um, by 2030. And that's that's uh, quite a difference. I would argue that if you're interested in that 1.5, you've got to go toward the upper end of that. You've got to go towards 65 to 70% reduction by 2030. Uh, I think a lot of people don't understand, that this is would would take really almost a wartime effort to get to the 1.5. Uh by all estimates we're sitting now at about 1.1 to 1.2 degrees above pre-industrial. Uh and with the momentum even in the climate system if you could magically wave a wand and, and get emissions to zero tomorrow it'd still go to 1.3 or 1.4 just as uh, as the ocean and atmosphere re-equilibrate. So we've got virtually no room left. Uh and and given the fact that we can't decarbonize with a magic wand overnight um we're i think we 're we 're committed to at least one point five uh, even with the most vigorous um, emission reductions. We should certainly aim for it because what it'll do is it'll get us closer to 1.5 than than 2, and there's an advantage in doing that. But people don't realise uh, how really, really, really difficult a 1.5-degree target is as we sit here today.
2: Well, we've effectively already got it, haven't we? Because when you take the aerosols out from the, the carbon pollution at the moment, the, the coal burning, you've already got something between a 0.5 and 0.8-degree and extra rise built in. But I'd like to mention... Yeah, mentioned, you do.
1: Sorry.
0: Yeah, that's right. And, 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 and that's, uh, that's a problem too. And, and when you look at the fact that you've got to get non-CO2 greenhouse gases down too, and, and the two biggest ones are those, are methane and nitrous oxide, and they're associated with agriculture, and that's a really tough nut to crack. Mm. Uh, you realise how, how tough this really is. And which
2: haven't even been really counted in the IPCC reports, have they?
0: Well, we actually included in our analysis of the carbon budget because what you can do is take the carbon budget, which is based on CO2, by the way. And the IPCC does this. They say um, that budget does not take into account non-CO2 greenhouse gases. If you want to do that, then you've got to reduce the CO2 budget. Now, the numbers are quite easy to remember, and that's that we had a a, a 1,000 billion tons of carbon that we could emit from the beginning of the Industrial Revolution to now for the two-degree target. If you take the non-CO2 gases into account, that drops to 790 billion tons. When you account for the fact we've already burnt 565 billion tons up to now, you don't have a lot left. You have 200 and some odd billion tons or about 20 years left. So that's for two degrees, not for 1.5 comes down to maybe five years left. So you can see just very quickly from those numbers how challenging this task really is.
2: But, but, well, this is um, a problem I have, and even with the reports that your that organisation puts out, that that's talking about a, a two-thirds chance, perhaps, of meeting those yes. figures. And I don't walk into a building if there's a two-thirds chance that it'll stay up, but one-third chance it'll fall down. Um, it, we need to go much, much further than that. And when I go to talk to, say, people like Josh, and he says, but this is what the Climate Council Josh, right, recommends... Um, that." Uh, shouldn't your targets be way stronger even than you're saying here?
0: Well, if if, if you go to anything above 75%, Jeff, and that's a very good point you're making, no doubt about that. If you go to um, 75% or above, basically we've consumed the budget. So uh, yes. one of the questions I guess you have strategically is, uh, are you going to have people just throwing up their hands and said, well, it's already too late, let's just cope with whatever comes our way? Or do you give them strategically a really really hard target, but one that you might just get there if you get your act together? Um, and uh, and uh, again, you're right. You would have about a 67 percent chance if you use the budget we use of capping temperature at two degrees. I guess you're right. Obviously, in terms of the science, strategically, what what I think you're is You're balancing with to the teach,
2: psychology, aren't you?
0: Yeah, I'm working about the psychology and I think that because I would do a lot of work with, with our ACT government here on this. And if you said, sorry, we've already blown the budget, uh, that's going to take the heat off them. And we've, you've got a lot of voices there still, even in the ACT, who don't want to do much about this. But we can go in and say, look, this is technologically feasible for ACT to do its, in fact, we've actually going to come in under our carbon budget the way it's looking now, which is even better. But what we can say to them is that, This is actually feasible. You can roll out a a transport system by 2040 or 2045, because we look at the 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 nuts and bolts. How often do you replace buses? Don't invest in anything that has to do with fossil fuels in your transport system. And when you stage it out like that, it work work out saying, well, the cost of electric buses is coming down. This looks feasible. And you can stay within your carbon budget. So I think it's a psychological, practical issue, but you're absolutely right that um, if you look at it from a probability point of view, if you said... Um, 67% chance that the plane would get between Sydney and Melbourne, you would have multiple crashes every day mm. and people wouldn't get on an airplane with that sort of probability.
1: No. If you've just tuned in, we're talking to Professor Will Steffen from Climate Council and discussing the latest report called Critical Decade 2017 Accelerating Climate Action. So the report highlights that Australia is highly vulnerable to the consequences of climate changing climate, from worsening heat waves, droughts, devastating coral reef bleaching and most of our population being exposed to sea level rise. Again, do you think Australians are aware or have been affected so far?
0: Yeah, I think there's growing awareness. And one of the things we're finding in in the Climate Council is um, what we call trusted voices in the community are now starting to speak out, uh, say, compared to a decade ago. I'm talking about people like the firefighters, the guys who go out in, in, in the bush and, and fight the fires. And they're becoming now more vocal about the fact that these, these fires are getting worse. Uh, they, they're happening more frequently. Uh, and the intensity in particular, is what they see changing um, and a, a, a really good quote from one of them was you, you won 't find a skeptic at the end of a fire hose
1: <laughs> uh, because
0: they they see in their own work what 's happening. Uh, the medical profession's another example uh, because they they really understand how these extreme weather events, extreme heat obviously uh, but also uh, long periods of drought, affects the psychological health of 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 Australians in the bush and so on, they're speaking out more. Uh, And you're um, uh, seeing other groups that are are talking, farmers, for example, who who used to be a lot of sceptics out there, more and more farmers are now saying, hey, we're seeing stuff now that we just haven't seen before. Uh, This is getting more difficult to cope with. So I I think that, yes, um, Australians are experiencing more of this. They're understanding more of it. and I see a really big change over the last five years it, particularly in terms of the connection to climate change. This is becoming a lot clearer for people. And I think this is part of the reason why the polls are showing a swing now after a, a drop post-Gillard uh, in the early Abbott years. It's now swinging back, back up strongly to people who understand that climate change is an issue and want something done. So again, I just keep hammering away... Uh, it, Everything's coming in place for us to really move forward, except for the politics and the ideologies of a certain fraction of the Australian population. Unfortunately, they seem to be in power federally.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: So in your fifth and final finding, you, you cover not just the massive health, economic, food risk and conflict risks to humans, but perhaps even more frighteningly and, and unfair, in my opinion, is the um, sixth great extinction, Earth's sixth great extinction event that will curb if we fail to rapidly and deeply reduce greenhouse gas emissions, I, I know one yeah, of the America, sorry one of the British journals has said we're already extinguishing 200 species a day.
0: Yeah, I haven't seen that figure yet. That could be right. Um, I think the point there is um, up and, up until now. Most of the pressures that have been driving species extinctions have been non-climatic, there have been land system changes, there have been local pollution, uh, and that sort of thing. But uh, increasingly, climate is is playing a strong role, and there's little doubt that by the second half of this century, uh, with the business-as-usual approach, climate change will be the dominant driver of species extinctions. The best estimates I've seen by uh, experts in this field say that if we continue on the same pathway, within about two or three human lifetimes, we will, in fact, have had the sixth-grade extinction event. Uh, so this, this actually um, equates to the speed of, uh, of a meteorite strike, and that's a good thing to keep in your mind. The last time we had the, the fifth-grade extinction, it was about 66 million years ago, um, when the big meteorite uh, strike uh, knocked out the dinosaurs and a lot of other uh, species along the way. But our human activities now, particularly climate, but other activities now look like a meteorite strike in terms of their impact on the biosphere.
1: So we'll, um, on that point, let's go to the recommendations that you made. We've got about four minutes to cover all those. Can you tell us us about the um, first recommendation, building a unified bipartisan consensus approach to climate change?
0: Yeah, very quickly, when you look around the world, those countries that are moving forward have done that. UK has done that, Sweden has done that, for example. So the government's change, policy doesn't change. That means the private sector, which has to do a lot of the heavy lifting, can invest in confidence. So this is absolutely critical.
1: Okay.
2: So other actions for our leaders are to revitalise the Climate Change Authority, strengthening its climate science capacity and build policy actions on science-based targets and pathways.
0: Um, yeah. Look, that 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 authority did a fantastic job up till about 2015. It's been watered down, in my view, uh, and it needs to be beefed up again. And the uh, advice needs to be based uh, strictly on the science in terms of what the targets and what needs to be done, and in terms of what our ambition should be as we uh, uh, as we play our role in the international arena.
2: And your fourth recommendation was to support and accelerate the effective actions of climate change being undertaken by states, territories and local governments. They seem to be doing the heavy lifting at the moment, don't they?
0: They are indeed, and we touched on this a bit earlier, but this is really, really important. Uh, for example, we've, we've seen scraps between the South Australian government and the federal government over the energy system. That sort of stuff's obviously counterproductive. Um, we, we need to have uh, this unified approach federally, and it has to be integrated uh, with what's going on at states and, and local uh, governments. I think a good example of that is the NEG, the uh, National Energy Guarantee, which apparently uh, was uh, rolled out without consultation with the states, and that was after they had agreed at COAG that there should be uh, more consultation between states and federal government. Uh, so obviously we've just gone backwards on that issue. We're not going to solve this unless we get coordination between the, the federal and state
2: governments. Mm. And on, right. on that one and back to Kay's um, mm. initial point of the unified bipartisan approach, you make a recommendation that um, to have a, cl- a clean, create a well-defined pathway towards net zero emissions in Australia. Obviously BZE, um, the very title says it beyond zero emissions, we reckon you've got to get to beyond zero emissions in 10 years. Um, how do you see that happening in Australia?
0: Uh, I think there are some models out there that that, uh, you can follow. One of them is the United Kingdom, where they have legislated uh, a pathway ramping down, um, I think, in five-year intervals uh, to get to net zero emissions. I think there's this by 2050. Um, New Zealand is is, uh, probably going to do the same thing. Uh, to legislate that there has to be a pathway and it has to follow this. They don't legislate how it's going to happen, but they legislate it has to happen. So there are examples out there of doing this. Uh, but again, when you look at what's happening in the state governments, uh, that's, uh, uh, ACT is an example, South Australia's an example. One other thing I would say very quickly, the best thing we can do is to get carbon out of our electricity systems really, really fast. That allows you a little bit more leeway with the tougher sectors like agriculture and transport. Yeah.
1: So your final recommendation about transforming Australia's position from a laggard to a leader on the global stage is one we've been talking about at BZE here forever and one with the economic benefits and opportunities. But how you actually achieve it, that, that is something you've already covered fairly quickly and we've only got about half a minute. So have you got anything more to add to that?
0: No, not really, except that we, we, we simply have to change our attitude, approach, and policies at the federal level. That's the only way we're going to be able to to crack this one.
1: Right. Okay, great. Well, thanks very much, Will. And it's been a very interesting conversation. Can listeners go to a website to find out more about your report?
0: Yeah, yeah. They can go to um, just uh, www.climatecouncil.org. and i'll just double check that to make sure i've got that right
2: and this report's just a, a pdf they can download and it's a very absolutely clear absolutely and easy yeah even. it
0: is it's, it's just it's just climatecouncil.org.au of course at the okay. end thank- so just climate climate council one word yep .org.au and they can download this for free from the uh, internet
1: thanks thanks names, professor Stephen. thank you very much Robert. okay thank you We've been speaking to Will Steffen from the Climate Council discussing the latest report called A Critical Decade 2017, Accelerating Climate Action. The Beyond Zero show is brought to you by the Climate Change Solutions Think Tank, Beyond Zero Emissions, and is recorded in the studios of 3CR Melbourne, and syndicated around Australia on the Community Radio Network. If you want to listen to this show or any of the others we've done, you can go to bze.org.au and click on Podcasts. If you enjoy the program and can donate to help cover airtime costs, please go to the website and click on the Donate button. Thanks for listening, and we look forward to you joining us again next week.
0: Beyond Zero Emissions is an internationally recognised climate solutions think tank that is focused on solutions, not problems. Become part of the solution by becoming a monthly base load supporter. Go to www.bze.org.au to find out more. bze.org.au
2: You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.